The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Idols of the Heart. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Galatians 2, 11 through 16. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. If you have uh, just joined us in the past few weeks, you might not know me. (laughs) My name is Justin, and I'm the lead pastor here at the church. My family and I uh, just got back from a wonderful four-week vacation in Colorado, and we had a great time just enjoying God and enjoying God's creation and the good gift of family. And uh, one of the things that our country does not do very well is rest. We work, 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 but very rarely take some extended time away to rest and recover and enjoy the good gifts that God's given us. This way of living is is very American, but not very Christian, honestly. That God calls us to a rhythm of work and rest. We're to work hard every day or in the daytime, right? And then we're to sleep and rest at night. God also shows us Uh, In the work of creation, the way he created the world, that we're to follow his lead and work hard six days and then rest on the seventh and worship him. Even in the Old Testament, God chose several festivals, week-long festivals for the nation of Israel to stop and to remember and to rest and to enjoy the good gifts of grace that God had given them. See, rest is one of the ways that we acknowledge God We acknowledge who he is and what he's done. We acknowledge that God is God, and guess what? We are not. See, when we rest, we stop working for an amount of time, and we remember that we are finite, but he isn't. He's infinite. When we sleep, he's working. And that's one of the reasons, I think, many of us cannot push pause, we cannot stop, and we cannot rest. We worship our work. We look to our productivity and our success for our validation and approval in life. See, our work tells us that we are somebody good and important and valuable, and therefore to take a day off or a week off or, God forbid, a month off, would actually throw us into an identity crisis. Who am I 
if I'm not getting stuff done? Who am I if I'm not productive? And maybe this will be a surprise to you. <laughs> that is actually one of the reasons I like to take all my vacation off at once. See, I work all the way through, you know, Thanksgiving and Christmas, and you guys come to the Christmas services, and I'm preaching most of them, and I'm, I'm working all those weeks, all year, and I save all my vacation for one month out of the year. And it's very interesting. If you've ever taken a vacation like this, and if you're a person who finds their identity in work. Now, listen, some, some of us are like, I could take a year off. It'd be fine, right? I get it. You're lazy. That's cool. Uh, <laughs> but some of us aren't, and we find our identity through our productivity. And here's what a long vacation feels like. Week one, you are doing all the things. On the way there, you're making a list of everything you can't wait to do. Visit this, check that out, go there, go there. Week one, you're going crazy. You're having fun. You're out from under the pressure to perform and you kind of let loose and have a little fun. I remember my dad changing when we'd go on a long vacation. I'd be like, my dad is fun. I didn't know my dad was fun. My dad is kind. My dad's a hard worker. I didn't know my dad was fun until we got him on vacation and he started boogie boarding. It was amazing, right? <laughs> But if you're wired like me, it takes at least a week to slow down and settle into vacation mode, right? Then in week two, you start to feel a little different. You've settled in a bit. You've got a new mode of living, a new mode of being. You might be staying up a little late. You might be sleeping in a little longer. You might not be setting an alarm. Your mind lets go of work and you start actually enjoying vacation and enjoying time away and enjoying the family but then something weird begins to happen. After a couple of weeks, you start to realize that you haven't created anything. You haven't helped anyone. You haven't sold anything or contributed to society in any real way for a while, and yet the world still sits on its axis, and everyone's life back home seems to be fine without you. See, for me, I really enjoy studying God's word, preaching it to you. Each week, I enjoy counseling and helping people walk with Jesus. But I also derive some of my meaning and value and significance in life from doing those things. And sometimes I make my job or my role as pastor into an idol. I can even make you into an idol looking to you for my validation and my approval instead of God. But when I take four weeks off, it starves that idol for a month. And it reminds me that I am absolutely replaceable and it helps me look to God again for my identity, meaning, and value rather than my role as pastor. Now, it also does a lot of other things and Enjoy time with the family. It enables the young guys that we've got pastoral residents, uh, enables them to get up here and get a few reps and learn their craft. And I just, I thank the residents uh, for preaching for me while I'm gone. And they actually crafted this whole sermon series. Um, they're learning how to do that, how to, how to exegete the text, how to set up a sermon series, how to preach. And so I'm thankful uh, that they uh, did that for me this week. They did, or the last month, they did a great job. Uh, and now... I am excited. I am pumped to be back. Um, I'm, I, you know, the last week of vacation, it's also kind of like, okay, I'm, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to go back. Let's go back. And uh, it's not a good, for me, it's not a good vacation until the kids get bored and we're ready to come home. I'm like, yes, it worked. That's, that's the goal. 
All right, so I'm excited to be back. Uh, one other caveat here for me is uh, I do jujitsu and I got a rude awakening to jujitsu this week and I actually got choked and that's what my voice sounds like uh, an 80-year-old man this morning, okay? So I apologize for my crackly voice. It might go out. I've got a bottle of water here just in case, uh, but you can pray for me and I'm gonna pray for us and let's get into our text this morning. Father, we... Thank you that we get to be here this morning and do what you created us to do, and that's worship you, look to you, see you, know you, hear you. And I pray that you would open our minds, open our hearts, open our souls up to you, to your spirit, to your word. We need direction. We need truth. We need love. We need approval. And those things ultimately can only come for you, from you. And so I pray that you would think through my mind this morning. You'd speak through my vocal cords. It would be all of you and none of me. And you would direct our hearts to the worship of you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. <clears throat> well, this is our last week in the Idols of the Heart series before we begin a long verse-by-verse study through the Sermon of the Mount. That's where we're going to start next week. Uh, I encourage you, you do not want to miss this. This is one of the most important sermon series I think we've ever done. Now listen, as I'm praying and I'm shaping and I'm crafting um, the sermons for the year, I'm asking the Lord, what do you want your people to hear? What do you want us to do? And We've had a crazy year, right? We've had an absolutely insane year. Whatever that thing was on Monday, I'd never heard of that, right? I've been here my whole life. I'm like, a what? That's not a thing. I go, it is a thing. Like, what was that, you know? But listen, it's about to get even crazier. I'm just gonna tell you that, right? We're stepping into an election. We're in election season right now, right? That's why everything feels like it's on fire, right? Everything feels like it's on fire because everybody's trying to get their guy in the White House or keep him in the White House or whatever. And so I would say, pause from social media, get away, don't read the news. You don't need it, all right? You don't need it. Jesus is coming back. That's the news you need to know, okay? The gospel's still true forever. He died for your sins. He's coming back again. That's probably all you need to know for this for the next six months or so, okay? So I started thinking, What does our church need? You know what we need? We need to hear, blessed are the peacemakers. We need the Sermon on the Mount during election season. That's what we need. And so that's what we're doing. We're going to let Jesus speak to us eternal truth and not garbage that we're seeing on the news cycles, okay? So I'm stoked for next week. This week's going to be all right, but I'm stoked (laughs) for next week, okay? So come back, okay? That's it. Okay, so that's next week. Now we're going to jump in last week, and we're talking about the idol of approval, right? Um, But before we do, let me give us a little backstory. And I have, okay, there's the clock. I haven't preached for a while, so this is going to be a long one, more than likely. Um, Let me give you a little backstory on idolatry. It's a kind of a weird concept if you've never heard of it before, idolatry, idol worship. Why do we spend time talking about idol worship? That's so ancient. That's so old. Why would, nobody worships idols anymore, right? Says the person that bows to this little thing in their pocket every day for eight hours a day, right? See, here's what's, why we're talking about it. The Bible begins with the account of creation, 
that God is, in the beginning, God, and God created everything there was. He created everything out of nothing. But when God chose to create mankind, he did something different. He made humans, the Latin term is amago Dei, or in the image of God. Now, this is foundational if you want to understand who we are as human beings, what we're for, our purpose, our telos, that what are, what are human beings for and what makes us different and distinct from the rest of creation. We were created, listen, to image God. One of the things that means is that we are to look to God. We are meant to live, quorum Deo, another Latin phrase, before the face of God. We're to look to God. We're to know God. We're to love God. We're to find all, everything that we need in God. And we're to reflect his image in the world. That human beings were created by God for God. We were created by God to look to him as the source of everything we need. <clears throat> that's, listen, that's what the Bible calls worship. What we're doing here this morning, this is worship. Singing is a part of worship. Many of us think worship is singing. It's way more than singing. It's way more. Worship is part of the liturgy. Worship is confessing. Worship is do what we're doing today. But worship is living quorum Deo, before the face of God, looking to God as our source for everything we need. Now listen, God made us all worshipers. Every human is religious in that sense. The most hardened skeptic or atheist is still a worshiper. He cannot uncreate himself in his own and in some other image. He is or she is a worshiper. She might be a God-denying atheist, and yet there's something in her life that is ultimate. There is something in her life that she bows down to, that she finds her identity, meaning, and value from. She's tapping her meaning in life somewhere, and if you find that somewhere, that is her God. Everyone worships. Everyone's life is pointed in some direction. There's no one who doesn't worship anything. We do not have the choice to not worship. Here it is. Our only choice is who or what to worship. See, when Adam in the garden, Adam and Eve, when Adam chose to listen to the voice of Satan over God, he wasn't just disobeying. Was he disobeying? Yes. Don't do that, right? Naughty. But it was more than that. He wasn't just breaking God's law. He was choosing to look to something other than God to meet his perceived needs. Instead of going to God, I'm going to listen to the voice of the Satan. I want knowledge of good and evil. That sounds like a good thing. I'm going here for that information and for that validation rather than to God. This is what the Bible calls idolatry. An idol is any created thing that is more important to you than God. Now, I don't just mean like in your mind more important. I mean your heart's functional trust, how you live. Many of us have good theology in our head, 
but in the practice of our lives, we show that God is less important than our own health and our own safety. God is less important than any other, some other created thing. See, anything that is more foundational to your identity, your happiness, your meaning in life, anything is more important to you than God, that thing is an idol. And the main message of the entire Bible is the war that's going on for our worship between the one real God who can actually meet our needs and actually can actually heal us and fix us and restore us and love us and idols that say they can, but they always fail to deliver. Always fail to deliver. I'm reading uh, Jeremiah in my um, personal time with the Lord in the mornings and, and in Jeremiah, it's constantly, it's talking about you've abandoned the, basically the well of God and you've hewn out your own cisterns and they're cisterns that are broken, that are leaking. And that's a perfect illustration of idols. That, it, that God is the source of eternal comfort, the source of eternal approval. He is the well that never runs dry, but we create these little idols and they're broken cisterns that are always leaking. What does that mean? You always have to pour water back into them. They never quite give you what you are looking for. Now, I doubt any of you are kneeling down before a statue of Aphrodite, right? The ancient Greek goddess <clears throat> associated with love, beauty, pleasure, passion, and procreation. But how many of you <clears throat> are driven into depression and eating disorders by an obsessive concern for your body image? How many of you feel less than because you don't have a husband of your own or a wife of your own? Or how many feel less than because you don't have a child of your own yet? How many of you spend countless hours on social media each day hoping for likes or hoping to see something that will tickle your fancy? See, we don't call it Aphrodite anymore, but we're still worshiping the same things. We're still driven by the same idol. Pastor Tim Keller says, quote, we might not be burning incense to Artemis, but when money and career are raised to cosmic proportions, we perform a kind of child sacrifice, neglecting family and community to achieve a higher place in business and gain more wealth and prestige. See, here lies our greatest issue. When Adam and Eve chose to worship an idol over God, they brought a curse upon the whole human race. See, their hearts were darkened, and the image of God in them was bent. Um, St. Augustine said, it called it incurvitus in se. They were now, instead of looking out, for God and for everything and for meaning and value in life, looking to God, they're now looking inward. They're bent inward. See, they're still worshiping, but now their hearts were desperately wicked and set like a thermostat gets set on 70 degrees. Their hearts were set on worshiping anything that would give them what their hearts desired. 
And this is the world that we've been born into. We're born worshipers, but our worship, our worship setting is on worshiping anything other than God. This is why John Calvin has said, and the guys have quoted it the past couple weeks, the human heart is an idol factory. What does that mean? That means we don't just enjoy the good things in life. We worship them. We make them ultimate. We say, here it is right here. If I don't have that, my life doesn't have meaning or value. In Ezekiel 14.3, God says to the leaders in Israel, he says this, these men set up their idols in their hearts. God was saying that the human heart takes good things. Listen, hear me. Now, this is very important. That we've got, everyone's got to hear this. When, I, when we start talking about idols, I'm not saying these things. The, I'm not saying the things that we worship are bad. That, that's crazy. Most of the time, idols are really good things that other guys have said that we make into God things. So we exalt their importance. We take God off his throne and may, we might even be like this. It just might be like this. Like career's right here and God's right here. You, and you just can barely see a difference. The problem is your career is nothing compared to God, Right? And so there should be a clear di differentiation between God and your career or God and your kids. So we take good things and we make them into God things. We begin to worship them. <clears throat> that our hearts crown them as king because we think they can give us the significance, security, safety, and fulfillment if we attain them. So an idol is anything in your life that is more fundamental than God to your happiness, meaning in life, and identity. Now, let me list for you three kind of categories of idols, okay? And for those who want to go deeper in this, we have a book called Counterfeit Gods by Tim Keller out in the foyer. Phenomenal book. I recommend it to anyone who wants to go a little deeper on this. In that book, Keller kind of talks about what he calls surface idols, cultural idols, and heart idols. Surface idols are really anything, right? Work, codependence, perfectionism, money, sex, family, all of these things, just good things that God gives us that we exalt as more important than God. But then there's something that's a little deeper that's underneath those values and that and idols, and that's called cultural idols. And I'm probably gonna do a podcast on uh, Sacred City Life on cultural idols because it, it's probably going to pique your interest here. It might. If you want me to do that, message me and, and uh, maybe I will. Cultural idols, listen to this, are ideologies like communism. Communism makes an idol out of the state. Capitalism. Capitalism makes an idol out of the free market. It says all problems are economic problems that can be solved if government just gets out of the way. Fascism makes an idol out of nationality or race. Individualism makes an idol out of individual rights 
and freedom. Marxism makes an idol out of class and power, actually. Now, all of these ideologies look to something other than God to heal the world. They reduce the human problem to economics, to class, to race, or not seeing, and and they completely avoid the biblical category of sin and the biblical category of evil, right? Spiritual evil. They make an idol out of these things. Now, that's all I'm gonna say about that. I don't have time to spend too much time on it because this series is about the deeper issues that drive those ideologies. And listen, they also drive, they give the surface idols their power. We're calling these heart idols and they can be kind of broken down to, listen, here it is, our over-desire. Again, these aren't bad, but our over-desire for them is our over-desire to be powerful, to be in control, to be comfortable, and to have the approval of people. Here's the deal. All the other idols are actually kind of on the surface. They wouldn't have any power if we didn't actually crave power, comfort, control, and approval. See, I was about to say something and then I I checked myself, I don't know. You watch how the world works and the world plays on these idols of power and control. The world gives you a fear and the world says you should be afraid of this and then it says, but we can control that fear if you do this. And we want power, we want control, we want comfort, we want approval. And so we listen and we obey. Think about money. We worship money. I've never loved any, I've never known anybody who worships money because they love paper. Just, <gasps> just love this. I want more of this because it's so cool. No, no, no. We worship money because we think money will give us power to get the life we want. That, that uh, the college scandal that's going on in our country right now, rich, wealthy people buying their kids' ways into college. You know, it's so terrible. Your kids, I got in, I got into Yale. Oh, I'm so good. And mom's like, mm-hmm, you got in because we gave a million bucks, right? What? We're thinking money can control the outcome of my children. The more money I have, I can get them in the right schools and I can therefore ensure that they're gonna have smooth sailing and they're gonna be successful in the future. We use money to get power. We use money to get control. There's a lot of scary things out there Maybe the bigger house with the gate in the gated community, maybe I can actually control some things about my future. We use money because it will give us a level of comfort 
that we believe we deserve. We can go to the restaurants that we want to go to when we want to go to them. We can buy the vehicles. It's kind of funny, too. If a vehicle salesman, now, no, no offense if you're a vehicle salesman, but everybody knows how to get you to buy the new van, okay? Mama, you know how they buy the new, get you to buy the new van, Mama? This is the safest vehicle on the market. <laughs> Nothing's ever been created like this. When you get an accident, you go into a protective bubble, and everything inside will be fine. You won't even spill your Starbucks. It's amazing. Just locks you in. <laughs> right? And then the, you leave going like this. Am I, can I be a good parent and not buy that van? How could I buy the one that they're going to die in? I have to buy the new one. Space age technology inside it. Getting into our desire for comfort and control. Right? Or... Money lets us buy the toys that we want to constantly entertain ourselves so we're never bored. Or lastly, it will gain us a level of approval in the eyes of others. That there's some of us that are driven by this idol of approval that we want others to look at us and say, you're good, you're acceptable, you're lovable, you're in the know, you're one of the good ones. Many of us, you know, we're, we're wearing masks and we're doing all these things, not because we think it's valuable or good or right. We're doing it because we don't want somebody to, sh to mask shame us. We just crave the approval of other people. See, now all of these idols, these power, control, comfort, and approval, they're, they're kind of always working. We all care about them to a certain level, to a certain extent. But more than likely, your heart is going to specialize in one or two of them. See, with money, again, like if you, if you like impulsively, obsessively save your money and just pack it away for a nest egg, right? For more than likely, you worship control. You think that nest egg can help you control the outcome of the future. What if I get cancer? What if I get this? I need that money there. You fear the future and you think a nest egg is your security. Now, spenders, they're usually worshiping comfort or approval. They can't stop buying that coffee. They can't stop buying that other thing. They can't stop going out to restaurants. They can't stop doing these because they crave comfort or they crave approval. Now, they use money to get what they really want, comfort that money can bring or the approval of some group. Now, here's the mantra. Here's the mantra of approval idolatry. And listen, very rarely will you say this. I pray that the Lord would open your eyes to search your heart to see if it's there. This isn't like, this is how I speak. This is how I define my life. This is my life motto. This is the voice in the back of my head that speaks to me. This is the underlying assumptions that I have. Why do I always do that? Like reflexively do that. It's probably because you're hearing this voice in the back of your mind say this. Listen, life only has meaning or I only have value if I am loved or respected by others. Now, 
This idol has been codified in countless novels and movies and cliches, right? Like the man who cannot slow down because he's working so hard to please his unpleasable father. Maybe his father's been dead for 10 years, but he can't slow down because all he hears in his voice is is his dad's voice in the back of his, you're never gonna amount to anything, you're never gonna be good enough. Maybe it was a professor in college. Maybe it was a high school football coach. It was some man in authority that said, you're just not good enough. You need to work harder. And that voice has been embedded into his soul and it drives him to workaholism. Maybe it's the the voice of the young mom who, who has the voice of her mother or her grandmother in the back of her mind that has told her everything the right way to do. And so now she can't stop calling her mom. Mom, what am I supposed to do here? Mom, what am I supposed to do there? Because her mom's opinion has been exalted to a level that's above God. This is why the Bible tells husbands and wives to leave their father and mother and cleave to one another. Now, this is cliche. These are cliche, right? They're cliche, but they're cliche for a reason. The idol of approval is real, and, and many of us worship it. It didn't, guess what, guys? It didn't stop at high school, at, when you got out of high school. When you used to walk into the lunchroom, and you looked across the lunchroom, and you saw all the tables, and you had to choose, oh, who, where am I sitting? Who are my people? Whose approval do I want? Whose approval do I have? It didn't stop there. And many of us can think, well, maybe I I think I've grown out of that. I'm my own man. I'm my own woman. I'm not driven by those things. And maybe for us, it would be helpful to take a look at our text today, Galatians chapter 2, and see something very surprising. Cephas, or Peter, this is Peter. I want you to hear, we know who Peter was, right? One of the apostles, big A apostle. Big A apostle, okay? You know what else Peter did? Peter saw the post-resurrected Jesus. Peter denied Jesus, and then Peter was restored by Jesus. He saw Jesus come back in the flesh. Peter, the one who denied Jesus in front of a servant girl and then became the bold gospel preacher on the day of Pentecost that saw the Spirit of God fall, that stood up and spoke to the masses that Jesus was the one and only Son of God. Peter, the man's man, Peter, wusses out in Galatians 2 and gets called out by the Apostle Paul. I don't have time to get into it too deeply this morning, but here's what's going on. Paul visits with Peter and says this, hey, Paul, here's the gospel that I'm preaching. Actually, let's look at verse 16 because you can see it in verse 16, the gospel that Paul's preaching. Uh, Start in 15. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. So both Paul and Peter are both Jews, okay? Culturally, religiously, they were. And not Gentile sinners, okay? Now, keep reading. Yet we know, here's the gospel, yet we know that a person is not justified, made right with God, sins forgiven, cleansed, brought into the kingdom, justified, look, by works of the law. He's saying there's nothing you can do to make yourself right with God. 
You can't obey your way into it. You can't obey the Ten Commandments enough. You can't be a good enough person. There's nothing a human being can do to be justified by God. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew, if you're now, if you're a Muslim, if you're a Republican, if you're a Democrat, none of those things matters. The only thing that matters is this, but through faith, believing in Jesus Christ. He says this, so we Jews have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. That's the gospel in a nutshell, right? Here's the deal. Nothing is more foundational and fundamental to your relationship with God than this, faith in Jesus Christ. Faith in Jesus Christ connects you to the living God. Everything flows through that. But here's the, also the deal. We have an idol factory in the human heart that's still operating, pumping out idols left and right. Peter knows that. Paul goes to Peter. He says, here's my theology. Peter's like, absolutely, just remember the poor. Keep preaching to the poor. Paul's like, oh, that's the very thing I've been willing to do. I've been wanting to do that. I've been doing that. Then they, here's the deal. Theology's great. Everybody needs good theology. Everybody needs to know faith in Christ is the answer. That's the gospel, pure and simple in its easiest form. Here's the problem. We have idol-worshiping hearts, and living that out is really difficult. And so, um, look, let's look at verse 11. So when, I'm just going to use Peter because that's easy. When Peter came to Antioch, that's Paul's mode, uh, the, his uh, base camp for his ministry, Paul says, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. Okay, so Paul's ministry is mainly to the Gentiles. Peter's ministry is mainly, has mainly been to Jews. Even though God showed up to Peter and said, Peter, rise up, kill, and eat. Remember those? Remember in the book of Acts? You can eat anything. Don't call anybody unclean. Like, he's had this revelation. He's had this theology. And yet, so he, he goes to Antioch. Paul's got all these Gentiles. They're not Jews. They're not circumcised. They don't eat like Jews. They don't have the kosher laws. And Peter, he knows none of that matters. The only thing that matters is faith in Jesus Christ. Let me say it like this. It doesn't matter what color your skin is. It doesn't matter if you grew up on the left political spectrum or right political spectrum. It doesn't matter what your position on guns or what your position's on philosophy. All the, none of that matters. You know what matters? Faith in Jesus Christ. That's what unites us. Amen. Peter said amen to that. That's right. But then, look at verse 12. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. Cool, amen, we're good. But then walks his people. See, Peter's people walk into the group now. And when they came, look, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. He separated from the Greeks, from the Gentiles, because he feared the approval or losing the approval of his people. You could call that racism. You can call that favoritism. You call that religion, religious. There's a lot of things you can call that. And then the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with them. So he's a leader in the church and he, you know, he's mingling with all the Gentiles and then all of a sudden his people show up and then he separates and he goes back over 
And Paul, and he leads his people to do the same thing. So now there's this division in the church in Galatia now. There's this division. There's the Jewish believers, the more conservative folks, and there's the more liberal folks. And it's interesting here. Paul doesn't just slap his hand. Look what he says. And he says, so that even Barnabas was led away, led astray by their hypocrisy. What is hypocrisy? Here it is. Peter's theology said, oh, I'm generalizing. Peter's theology says nothing matters but the blood of Christ. But his practice showed, oh, no, no, no. You're being hypocritical to what you say you believe. You are actually showing favoritism to your people. You're actually separating yourself because, so you say the blood of Christ at all that matters, but then you say highly offensive things, but then you separate, you push away from those who don't have the same political ideas that you have. See, that's what's going on. He's at, you're acting hypocritically and look what Paul says. This is foundational to our church, to a gospel-centered church. Look what he says. But when I saw Paul, Paul saw, when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. Do you see that? He says, it, you're, he doesn't just, you're being a racist, you're being a religious zealot, whatever. He says, your conduct is not in step with the gospel, that the gospel has a way of living. If nothing matters but the blood of Jesus, then your dinner table should look like nothing matters but the blood of Jesus. You should have, whatever your neighbors are, should be around your dinner table. You shouldn't be separating yourself from others. That the gospel has a walk to it. The gospel has a direction. The gospel has a line. And Christians, big A apostle, Here's the gospel, I believe it, but I'm living like this. You're not in line with the gospel. You might have good theology, but your practice isn't in line with the gospel. You have forgotten the gospel. And so Paul, this sin is in front of the whole church, so Paul calls him out in front of the whole church. Peter, you're being a hypocrite and you're not living in line with the truth that you say you believe. If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? He goes on to share the gospel. Now here's the deal. How often are we like Peter? How often do we fear losing the approval of some group of people and our conduct gets out of step with the gospel? Maybe it's your family. Families can put a lot of pressure on you to act in a way that's out of step with the gospel. Maybe it's our 
political group. I know we all, see, here's the idea, here's some, one of the problems is I think pol- when, you, when you take God out of our country, politics becomes the number one thing that we worship. And so we look to politics to solve all the world's problems. And so when we, when we put that kind of significance on politics, then we have to choose a side and there's nobody in the middle. And we're never gonna give ground to the other person and they're the reason our country's going to hell in a handbasket. And so we choose a side. We got it, we choose a side. And then we listen to news that's only supporting our viewpoint. And then we hear a Christian brother say something we disagree with or we don't like, and we separate from them. We even, I'll leave a church, I'll go somewhere else where everybody's just like me. And that's a secondary issue. And that's a sin to do that. And you're not walking in line with the gospel. You're dividing over secondary issues. You should leave a church over theology. And really, that's about it. We, we want to be accepted. We want the approval of some group. And we're willing to put our faith or the gospel on the back burner in order to gain the approval of people who look like us. People who work with us, have the same amount of income as us. Maybe it's our friends at work. See, this peer pressure thing wasn't just a high school thing. The apostle Peter struggled with it. I bet we do too. Now, it's interesting because Paul, how does, I don't I have no idea when I'm supposed to stop anymore, so, so whatever. <clears throat> This is a good thing about socially distanced. We can just pull up these curtains when the next service comes in, right? They got plenty of places to sit. Just joking. Okay. <clears throat> think about Paul. Someone, one of the pastoral residents asked me this week as we were studying this text, why, why is Paul, why does Paul see this so clearly? Why is Paul not like moved back and forth and wishy-washy? And one of the ideas I thought, just think of Paul's conversion. Paul was the elite of the elite. He was educated in the highest schools. He was, the most, he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was brilliant, and he was persecuting Christianity. And then God showed up and goes, you're a moron. <laughs> Wrong team, dummy. Right? Everything you've worked for your whole life has been a failure. That's, what Paul, that's how Paul says it. Everything I count everything as a loss for the knowing of Jesus Christ. Paul's ego had been just annihilated. Paul's arrogance and cultural elitism annihilated. So Paul can clearly see, wait, God saved me, an enemy of God. I was killing Christians. He rescued me. He saved me. I didn't do anything to deserve it. It was the sheer grace of God. How could I separate myself from others who differ from me in secondary issues? See, Paul's intimate knowledge of his rescue as an enemy of God enabled him to walk in step with the gospel and go after his enemies, have a missionary posture to the culture and could go after people that disagreed with him and pull them in and share the gospel with them. Paul, look at verse, in chapter one, verse 10, I love it. Paul says it like this. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? 
Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Why should we care about the approval of man? Why should we care about the idol of approval? Because it's a false God. It tries to, to get us to believe a false gospel. It tries us to worship something other than God. Jonah, oh, I'm going to go there. Jonah 2.8 is one of my favorite verses. And Jonah 2.8 says this. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. We all were created to be filled by God. That's what that steadfast love is, a faithfulness, a depth, something in our soul that nothing else can fill. We, we, we were made to tap into that kind of steadfast love and receive it from God. But when we pay attention to vain idols, we'll never get it from them. They can never supply what we're actually looking for. Now, as I close, I'm gonna give us three things we can do to free ourselves, to get free, to get free from heart idols or to <clears throat> put to death heart idols or to starve heart idols. First thing you have to do is you have to identify what they are. What are your proclivities, your idolatrous proclivities? Now, how do you do that? How do you identify it? Here's one easy way. Look at your problem emotions. The things that you can't really figure out why you do what you do, why you get so angry when, somebody, when something happens, you get so angry. You, you get so afraid. You get so anxious. You feel so hopeless. The, all of those are problem emotions, and I guarantee you, when you trace back those problem emotions, you're finding an idol. You're finding something that you think you need, but you're not getting, and it's not God. So ask yourself, if you are angry and you don't understand why you're angry, now there's a righteous anger, I'm not going there, but if you're angry and you don't know why, and you kind of blow up, what, what just happened there? Ask yourself, what am I trying to get right now? What am I trying to get? Did you just blow up at the kids? Okay, why did you do that? I've worked hard all day. I just want to sit down in front of the TV for 30 minutes and just have a look. Oh, so comfort. So you're looking for, right now, you think you deserve 30 minutes of comfort. And so you're willing to yell at your children to get that idol. Okay. Step one, identify, right? Is that why I'm angry? Am, am I angry because I'm being blocked from something that I believe is a necessity when in actuality it's not a necessity? Okay, if you're fearful or you're badly worried, you're anxious, is there something too important to me right now? What, what, am I, what am I being blocked from that I'm not getting? If I'm thinking, if I don't get this, I'm going to be ruined. Is it a deal? Is it a business deal? I'm so stressed out and worried because if I don't get this business deal, we're going to fail. We're going bankrupt. Okay. Many people have gone bankrupt. If in a, even if that worst case scenario happens, many people, and, and lived meaningful lives after that. You're, you're, this is not the end of the world. We can still trust God in the midst of it. Am I so scared because something is being threatened which I think is a necessity when it's not? 
or if you're feeling depressed or hating yourself, ask, what has become too important to me? What am I telling myself that I have to have? If I don't have this man, I won't be anything. If I don't have this woman, I won't be anything. If I don't get this career, I won't be anything. Is that why I'm so down because I failed or lost something that I think is a necessity when it's not? So number one, you have to identify it. I'm craving power. I'm craving control right now. That's why I'm freaking out. Second, name that idol, then repent. A repent means turning from it. Turn away from it and turn to Jesus. And here's the last one. So second one is repent. Third one is rejoice. And here's, as I close, many of us don't know how to rejoice in the gospel, actually enjoy it in the moment when I'm craving the idol of approval. How can I rejoice in the gospel that can crush that idol and exalt Jesus to his proper place? This is how. Here's how it looks in relation to the idol of approval. You preach this to yourself. Say this, Father God, through the work of your spirit, that wasn't me. Power surge, boom. <laughs> if I was a better preacher, I could use that somehow. <clears throat> Preach this to yourself. Father God, through the work of your spirit, I have noticed that I have been worshiping the idol of approval. I've been looking to others for my meaning and my value. I repent of placing others on the altar of my heart where you alone should be. Father God, forgive me through Jesus and help me worship you and you alone. Listen, no one else is worthy of my worship. No one else has done for me what you have. Jesus was despised by men so that I could be approved by God. Jesus was called a friend of sinners so that he could be my friend. Jesus was condemned as a criminal so that I could be set free from the just punishment of my many sins. Only through Jesus can I have what my heart is looking for, the ultimate final, complete, eternal approval of God that comes through the gospel. Now here it is. Did Peter know that? Heck yes, Peter knew that. Was Peter believing it in this moment? Heck no, he wasn't. And I'll tell you, if Peter needed somebody to rebuke him, maybe you might occasionally, maybe I might occasionally, this is what we need. This is how you preach the gospel to yourself to free you from idols. And it's not, you know what, just do that this year. Make that your 2020 goal for the rest of the year. No, this is our lifetime goal. We'll always be doing it. Repenting from our sins and putting our faith, turning from idols, turning back to Christ. This is what the Christian life is. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for the beauty of your gospel. I thank you for how you set us free from cultural idols and surface idols and heart idols. And I just pray that you would continue that work in us. Give us eyes to see the state of our own soul, where we're at, and help us turn from them and turn to you. And as we come to the table, I'm reminded once again how faithful and how consistent you are, that we are sinners, we worship other gods, and yet every week you remind us and you put the body and the blood in our hands and you remind us week in and week out. You've got us covered. You are at work. We are justified through Jesus Christ, by faith in Jesus Christ, and that alone. 
So I pray now that baptized, repentant believers would come to your table and receive grace in their time of need. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.